Pastor Ross uh, asked me uh, to share on Friday, I said, absolutely. He had a cold and it's been hampering him and his lungs. And so, um, but we had prepared for me to to begin teaching next week. And I was going to do a a two-week series on the book of Jonah. And so now I have three weeks to teach, I think. And so we'll see how that goes. And uh, we're in the book of Jonah So if you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah, chapter 1. There are many storylines that we could follow in the book of Jonah. There's the greatest revival of the Old Testament. Uh, Just 120,000 people come to know God and bow down to God. It's just a a great story. We can follow the storyline of the sovereignty of God. He's so in control. We'll see he's the one that causes the storm to come, he causes the, the, the fish to show up, and the, the whole scenario surrounds the sovereignty of God. And what a great message that would be indeed if we just focused, on, focused in on that. The world's worst missionary. We could, <laughs> we could follow that storyline. Jonah was the world's worst missionary, told to go to Nineveh, and he goes the opposite way. Indeed, we will cover many of these topics as we go through the book of Jonah, but the one I really want to focus in is this, the boundless, matchless grace of God. By the time that we complete our study through the book of Jonah, we will come to know how gracious and kind is our Savior, and his matchless grace cannot be compared to anyone. He loves humanity. He loves you and I. As we begin our journey with Jonah, let's clarify one point. Jonah is not the hero of the story. God is. At the beginning, we are like Jonah. You know, at the beginning, we see Jonah running from God. At the end, he's arguing with God, and in between, he's praying and preaching. He's not the hero. This book is about God. We can see it clearly this way. The fish is mentioned four times in the book of Jonah. The city is mentioned nine times, the city of Nineveh. Jonah is mentioned 18 times. God is mentioned 38 times. This book is about God and how great his heart is towards the prodigal sons and daughters who run away from him. God never gives up on Jonah, not when he runs away and not when he sits under the vine and pouts. (laughs) Here's the takeaway lesson for all of us. We're so much like Jonah that it's scary. (laughs) There's a little Jonah in all of us and a whole lot of Jonah in most of us. That's why we need not just grace, but the boundless grace of God. We, We are desperate people. The historical setting begins in the 8th century B.C., when we read there in 2 Kings 14, verse 25, it says this, that God says, Restore the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arab, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, and the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. So we see such an amazing time in a nation of Israel, a prosperous time. We see Jonah, who is a real person and a real prophet. A prophet is one who proclaims the message of God. You know, we uh, 
today you, you have different groups that don't believe in the gifts uh, of God that, in, that are mentioned there in chapters 12, 13, and 14. They think that because the word of God is uh, complete that we don't need these gifts. They're called the sensationist or say cessationism. It is the view that the miraculous gifts of the spirit, such as healing tongues and prophetic revelation, pertain to the apostle era only, served a purpose that was unique to establishing the early church and passed away before the canon of scripture was closed. And of course, their proof text is 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12, and of course, the doctrine of the sufficiency of the scriptures. In that verse, it says this, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, it says this, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfection disappears. And the early 80s, I remember that there was such an argument that said that this particular verse spoke about the Bible being the perfection that comes. No scholar would determine that now. Nowadays, there's no way that they would even say that today. They all know that this is speaking of Jesus Christ. So if you were taught that in the 80s, you have to hit the reset button and you have to say, this is speaking of Jesus Christ. And so the argument would go now to the sufficiency of scriptures, whereas the scriptures is clearly, and I believe this, the scripture is clear enough to make us responsible for carrying out um, our, our, our present responsibility to God. No one can say God has not revealed enough for us to be saved or to live a life pleasing to him. Scriptures makes us competent and, and equipping for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 makes that very clear. We do not need to add to it to meet today's challenges or subtract from it to mess with today's ideas. The word of God is perfect and complete, giving all um, we need to know about Christ's salvation and godliness. So uh, I'm totally in agreement with that. I just think that in 1 Corinthians 12, when you think of the gifts used properly, it edifies, exhorts, and comforts the church. Now, there is no prophecy that should ever be included today to build upon the scriptures. That is sealed. That is a complete done deal. But when it comes to prophetic word from God to edify or to build or exhort somebody, I believe that's still in existence. Um, I don't know where Pastor Ross lies in this, but I would be considered a continuism or a continuationism, uh, which is the view that the miraculous gifts are, are, are normative and have not caused uh, or have not seized and are available for the believer today. I, I, I personally would fall into that group. And, um, and by the way, in this church, we have all sorts. And so, and there's no reason to uh, deny fellowship with one another. This isn't one of the essential doctrines. But nevertheless, uh, some churches get really funky and weird <laughs> with these gifts. And it makes me run to the sensationist side and say, I'm one of them, you know. And so, uh, so we're, we're very careful. Um, you know, I was teaching the book of uh, Corinthians to our young adults, and I was sharing with them that, you know, through chapters 12, 13, and 14, that I've seen it all. When I was young, I loved searching for the new experience. I would go where they were saying there was a prophet or a prophetess and, you know, where there was people praying and, and people falling down. I'm like, yeah, I want to I wanna go, man. I want to experience the power of God innocently, right? I'm just, I just wanted to experience God um, and didn't know better. 
Um, but now that I'm old <laughs> and, and, you know, firm in God's word, I don't need all that stuff. I just need Jesus and his word. Just, just, just want to encourage you. You know, there's, there's a lot for edification in these gifts, but the word of God is still the word of God. And so in everything that's done in the church, whether it's prophetic or uh, through tongues or anything else, has to go through the word of God, has to be tested. According to 1 Corinthians 14, we must test everything through the word of God. Nothing, nothing goes by or, you know, outside the realms of the word of God. Everything has to be tested by the word of God. So here, this Jonah, a real person, I say that because in your cemeteries, I mean in your seminaries, they say that Jonah wasn't a real person, and this, this whole story is uh, mythology or, you know, great story, and it was just a story to, to illuminate a certain truth, and, and they exclude uh, this, and I just want you to say that's hogwash, because you're going to see next week that Jesus verifies the story of Jonah. Amen. Who's greater? You know, who's greater, Jesus or your seminary professors? Um, I remember the story of Pastor Chuck when uh, they were speaking about some of the writings of the Bible and when they were written. And they were saying that some of Isaiah was written by Isaiah and, and half of it was written by a false Isaiah. And so they were, you know, the, so they wanted to speak at the Calvary chapels. And so Pastor Chuck had the guy on the phone and the guy says, uh, and, and Chuck just tells them, well, Jesus quotes from every part of Isaiah from the beginning all the way to the end. And the guy says, well, Jesus doesn't have the information that we had. <laughs> Here, here's Pastor Chuck, click, <laughs> you know, yeah. Who are you gonna believe? Pastor Chuck, no, Jesus, Jesus, absolutely. I love it, you know, Pastor Ross shares about a story about being at Pete's Coffee, and he was sharing with a gal, and the gal says, I don't believe in hell, and he says, Jesus does. What are, what are you gonna say? No, no one likes to yell at Jesus or, you know, Jesus. that's the words of Jesus. You know, going back, I took a long way here. I took a rabbit trail. <laughs> author and date, of course, the author is Jonah. No reason to doubt that. He prophesied during a peaceful and prosperous, prosperous time of Jeroboam II. You can read the story in 2 Kings chapter 14. Uh, he ruled the kingdom, the northern kingdom, some, from 782 to 753 B.C. before Christ. So most scholars would put Jonah uh, around 760 B.C., the story, 760, 760 years before Jesus Christ. And so, uh, so let's begin. Verse 1. It says this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Mattiah. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And so here it begins by saying the word of the Lord came forth. Twice we're going to see that. The first time is here as we're reading verse 1. Another time is when, um, when, when uh, Jonah repents and God tells him the second time, go forth and preach my word. How did God communicate to him? We're not told. 
Was it through his thought patterns, which we've seen in the Bible? Was it through an angel? Could have been. Uh, it could have been through a person. Uh, God uses many ways throughout uh, the Bible to communicate his truth. Um, but I just want to share this with you. The number one way that God is going to speak to you is through your Bible. If you're not reading your Bible, you're not hearing from God. You've got to read your Bible. Every new believer that comes to me, I say, read, read, read. And when you're tired of reading, keep reading. Because <laughs> God is going to speak to you. And he's going to do something powerful in your soul. Keep reading the word of God. So here the word of God came forth to uh, Jonah here. And what did he said? he said? He said to him, go to that great city of Nineveh and preach, preach against it. So Nineveh the capital of the Assyrians. And Nineveh was located in the north part of Mesopotamia, which corresponds to Mosul, Iraq, today. Um, a lot of people get confused with the Assyrians, with the Syrians. The Syrians are modern-day country today. The Assyrians were back in ancient times. They no longer exist. And so don't confuse the two. It's easy to do that in the Old Testament. So at this particular time, the Assyrians had, uh, uh, well, according to Jonah chapter 4, there was 120,000 people in the city itself. Compare that to Berkeley. Berkeley has 117,145 people, so a, a big city with lots of people in it. So when he says the great city, he's not kidding. He will take a three-day journey to cover Nineveh. And so he says, go to Nineveh and preach against it. When God said to Nineveh, uh, that when God said that Nineveh was wicked, he wasn't kidding. Oh my. Uh, we have a lot of historical documents. Nineveh was becoming the most powerful empire in the world that day. Uh, if you remember, uh, there was Egypt and there was you know, Nebuchadnezzar there in Babylon. And each one was dominated by the Assyrian uh, kings there, and the Syrian had a reputation for cruelty that it's hard for us to fathom. Antiquity tells us when their armies captured a city or a country, unspeakable atrocities would occur. Things like skinning people alive, decapitation, mutilation, ripping out the tongue, making a pyramid of human heads, piercing the chin with a rope, and forcing prisoners to live in a kennel like dogs. Ancient record from Assyria boasts of this kind of cruelty as a badge of courage and power. So here, and now you realize why Jonah doesn't want to go. You know, who, who wants to go to Nineveh when that is expected, you know? Um, you know, but Jonah is not God, and God wanted to reach this Gentile nation. I think of the world before Christ, the, the countries in this world before Christ. I, I, I think of Afghanistan now. I think who will, who will go to Afghanistan now where they're uh, doing things that are such, it's, it's horrific what they're doing to the women, killing anybody that opposes their religion and, uh, and doing the most disgusting and sinful things ever. Who, who wants to go? This would be like going to Nineveh but God prepares hearts. You know, Ezekiel chapter 18 says this in verse 21 to 20, 23. 
But if a wicked man turns away from all the sins he has committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, he will surely live, he will not die. None of the offense he has committed will be remembered against him because of the righteous things he has done, he will live. And this is God speaking in verse 23. Do I, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the sovereign Lord. Rather am I, he goes, rather am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? So of course God's going to send missionaries to these countries around the world. I remember when I first gave my life to Jesus, there was this uh, inkling in my soul that said, I got to reach the lost. And it was here in, the, in San Diego County where I got saved. And, and there, was, there was just something deep within my soul that wanted to reach the lost, whether it was in San Diego, uh, you know, later I would go to Mexico and then of course Canada. And then you guys know the history of Nepal and India for 10 years and, and serving in these different places. But the, it started with a burden but this burden, who knows what to do with the burden? And, and, but, but God is doing something there. And he's sparking interest for saving the laws. And, and, I, and I think of places like Ireland, when St. Patrick went there and, and preached the gospel. St. Patrick was born in Great Britain. I don't know if you knew that. At the age of 16, Patrick was taken prisoner by a group of Irish raiders who were attacking his family, his family estate. They transported him to Ireland where he spent six years in captivity. During this time, he worked as a shepherd and he was outdoor and always uh, alone. And that's where he found God, or God found him. <laughs> it's there where he became a devout Christian. In a dream, God spoke to him and said, it's time for you to leave Ireland. So he makes his way down to the coast and he gets on a boat and he convinces the captain to take him back to Great Britain. In Great Britain, he hears an angel speaking to him, telling him you need to go back to Ireland. Can you imagine? He already knew, he already knows the culture. He knows how difficult it is. They're pagans. They, they know nothing of God. They're worshiping all these idols, like these countries that I go to, and where there's millions of idols they worship. And he knows that. It's difficult people. And since this dream was so real to him, he set his life apart to learn the word of God. He took some 15 years to study the word of God. After his ordination as a priest, he went to Ireland. That's amazing. And now you know the history, right? 432, St. Patrick brought the gospel to Ireland and changed that city right side up, or that country right side up. It's amazing, huh? That burden that God puts in people's heart. Longinus evangelizes Sudan. Willie Broad, which is at the end there, B-R-O-R-D, and 11 companions crossed the North Sea to become missionaries to the Netherlands. Boniface begins missionary work in Germany. Franciscan William of Rubruck begins his journey to the Mongols. John Calvin in 1555 sends the Huguenots to Brazil. In 1556, Gaspar da Cruz spends a month preaching in Wangchao, China. Richard Johnson in 1788 was the first Christian cleric in Australia. 
1790, Prince William, a freed slave from South Carolina, goes to the Bahamas. In 1825, George Boardman goes to Burma. All these men, and there's, there's thousands more, and women, were spoken to by God to go to these countries. I say all that to say this. In this group, I'm sure there's people that want to do something pretty amazing for the kingdom of God, whether it be here or abroad, and you don't know what to do, and we do a good job at training. We do a good job here at discipling. I think when Pastor Ross reads or breathes his last, and by the way, he doesn't ever think he's going to die, but we know differently. So, it, you know, <laughs> when he breathes his last, there's going to be a chapter, chapter 18, maybe chapter 19. We have a lot of chapters because the church has a lot of funny things, you know, and so we, we have chapter one, chapter, you know, any of these chapters. But chapter 18, 19 will speak about missions through Calvary Chapel of the Rock. We got missionaries in Jordan right now preparing the language. They want to start the work in Jordan but be pressed out into the Middle East. We got guys in Peru that want to go and start Bible colleges in Brazil and Argentina and do work in these areas. We got, we, we're partnering with guys in Nepal, in India, Pakistan, all over Africa. We, we, we do this well. And I say this for your benefit. Some of you don't know what to do. Well, remember that there's two kinds of people. There's senders, right? One that send, and there's ones, and then there are those who are sent. So if you're one that are, as a sender, you work hard to be able to financially take care of those missionaries. But if you're one being sent, we're good at doing that here at The Rock. We train you, we prepare you, and we get you going. You know, every time I read a list of these men like this, I, I read yesterday hundreds and hundreds of them. I was just reading them like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm getting so excited, you know. And, and I think that might be Pastor Ross's worry. One day Bond's going to go and not come back, you know. And so I, you know, uh, and I, I just, I just, I love missions. It, I, I just, I want to reach the lost. And, and we're here in Santa Rosa, so we're doing the same thing here. Let's reach the lost for the kingdom of God. And, uh, but chapter 17 or 18, whichever chapter, we're going to put this, all this information is going to be pretty amazing. We're going to read statistics just like this. But Jonah, he's a different character. Verse 3 tells us that Jonah ran away from the Lord. What, is, what was he thinking? You can't run away from the Lord. And he headed for Tarsus. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for the port. And after paying the fare, he went abroad, aboard and sailed for Tarsus to flee from the Lord. Now, Tarsus, we don't know where it is. We just know that if you were to go the furthest distance away from Joppa, which is Tel Aviv, you would end up in Spain. So most scholars believe that Tarsus is Spain. 2,000 miles away. Straight shot, you know, of taking that, that, that ship. 2,000 miles away, Jonah wants to run from the Lord. <laughs> Tarsus was as far west as you could go in Nineveh. It was northeast of Joppa, modern-day Tel Aviv. When you run from God, you always go as far as you can go, right? We're not talking about distance. 
on planet Earth, we're talking from our hearts. When we run from God, we, we go a long ways, as far as ways we can. I remember telling my mother, who always wanted to invite me to church, I want nothing to do with God. I want nothing to do with him. And I would go as far as ways I could from staying away from any religious service or anything like that. But every now and then, God would pierce your heart and say, obey your mom. <laughs> and then coming to church, hearing the gospel. Oh, my goodness. You'll always go as far as you can go. And when you set sail for Tarsus, you go without the blessing of God. Psalms 139, verse 7 through 9 says this. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, <laughs> even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. We can't run from God. Jonah's first mistake here. Verse four. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Who sent it? The Lord. The Lord is so sovereign. The Lord sent a great wind on the sea. When you think of sovereignty of the Lord, sometimes you, you run into the problem where where does free will, human responsibility, you know, interjects itself. And, and that's a friction. That's something that we'll never, ever be able to figure out. So most people get rid of free will and they just think God's sovereignty. But we read in the Bible, it's the both. It's two. You know, and, and we don't quite understand how that works. But here, in Jonah, we see it working hand in hand. God's sovereignty, he, he's going to say things and it's going to come forth and he's going to make sure that Jonah lines up. <laughs> the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. By the way, that word God there in the Hebrew is Elohim which is strange because when you're speaking of the true and living God in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God, that's Elohim. So context demand, demands what they should write. So we know they're not talking about the true and living God, so they write lowercase g-o-d. So if you have an Old Testament Bible, reading the book of Jonah, whenever you see lowercase g-o-d, that's Elohim, but that's talking about gods that men have made up in their imagination. There's no other gods but God, the true and living God. So here he makes it clear. It's talking about the gods that have created, that are created by mankind. Um, that's Elohim. By the way, when you're, when you're thinking of Elohim, remember that in the Old Testament, angels are called Elohim. It's because Elohim means, you know, God uh, more than one, but it also means power, strength. You know, and, and so it's speaking of angels, Elohim, but your, your, your English Bible will say angels because your translators covered that for you. It also is mention of judges, men and, uh, that are judges over a, a city. They're called Elohim. That's important because there's cults around that want to tell you that one day you're going to be a god. <laughs> Context demands what you should write. They wrote judges. They wrote angels. They wrote lowercase g-o-d. 
And when you're talking about the true living God, when you mention Elohim, it's always capital G, lowercase o-d. So whenever you see capital G, that's Elohim, that's the true and living God. As in Genesis 1, verse 1, there's a little side information for you. So anyways, these guys were calling upon their gods. When we're in Nepal and India, they have millions of God that they worship. And everything's a God, from the tree to the insects to the animals, the elephants is, is, is really a powerful God in their mindset. And uh, they will give money as the elephant's walking by to the elephant. And the elephant keeps it and puts it in his savings account. No. <laughs> the elephant hands it to his owner, and you're like, oh, I see how it works. And so, but uh, anyways, uh, so but they, they, they think that if they give money to the elephant, that they're going to receive a blessing from their God. Interesting, isn't it? So these men are on this ship. They've sailed many times this distance from Joppa to uh, Tarsus. And, but here the, the storm is so violent. And it says there in verse 5, all the sailors were afraid and each cried to his own God. And they threw their cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Now they're their income is tied to the product that they bring. So everything they're throwing out, well, there goes their income. But it's necessary. They're going to die. But Jonah had gone below the deck where he laid down and fell into a deep sleep. The captains went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call upon your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. So the captain sees him. He's down below. He says, get up to the top and call upon your God. In verse 7, it says, Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for the calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they took straws, and they equaled them all the same size except for one. They cut it off, and they made it small. And they said, Everybody take a lot. God is so amazing. You know, that, that God made... Jonah pull out the short stick, you know? And here he is, he has a short stick, and these people are like, you're the one. You're the problem. Uh, we don't do that today. We have the Holy Spirit, and we have his word. Come on, we, we don't throw dices and say, should I marry her or not? You know, no, you know, look to the word of God, you know? <laughs> it says there, uh, in verse seven, the, you know, they, they cast the lots, it fell on Jonah in verse 8. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? <laughs> in verse 9, he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship Yahweh. <laughs> Uh-oh. And notice what he says. The God of heaven who made the sea that we're in. <laughs> And the land. By the way, Jonah uses the word for the true and living God, Yahweh. Whenever you see that in your English Bible, capital L-O-R-D, that's in your Old Testament, that's always Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. Later on, they add the vowels, A and E, so it's Yahweh. And so that's, later on, you know, when they're translating in the Bible, they translate it to Jehovah. So, but later, the Americans put the word, they, they, this is our English word, capital L-O-R-D. So when you see that in your Bible, that's Yahweh, the one and only God. There's no other God. So he says, I worship Yahweh, 
the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from Yahweh because he had told them. Can you imagine that? They, that, you know, he, he told them, yeah, I'm running away, and because I'm running away, this has happened to you guys. <laughs> You're a part of it now. In verse 11, it says the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? In verse 12, he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. He replied, and it will become calm. And I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. It's interesting he doesn't say turn around and head back to Nineveh, right? He, 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 he says, I'd rather just die. Throw me over. His mind state, his attitude, boy, it's off-centered. But now his rebellion, his disobedient, his sin has affected everyone. And isn't that true in our lives today? Our rebellion, our disobedience, our sin will affect everyone. If you become drunk and you hit somebody, it's a good chance they're going to put you in jail, you're going to lose your job, and you're going to affect your family. It affects everybody. Same thing with drugs, sexual immorality. There's so much sin that affects everyone. And here, Jonah's sin affects all these sailors. sailors. As we stand back and look at this story, a question naturally arises. How far will God let us go in sin? I don't think anyone knows the full answer, but it appears that sometime the answer is that God will let us go really, really, pretty, pretty far. He <laughs> doesn't always stop us quickly. Listen, for Jonah, he could have arranged things so that the ship went to a different port. He could have arranged things so the ship had no room for Jonah. He could have arranged things so a thief robbed Jonah of his money, but he didn't. Sometimes the judgment of God has simply let us go on and on in our sin so that we have to face the consequences of our own disobedience. Sin has a way to bring its own judgment. When we decide that we don't need God, his response is not always to bring out the lightning and thunder. More often than not, God says, if you want to jump off the cliff, I've warned you time and time again, but if that's what you want to do, I will not stop you. Sometimes God chastens us or disciplines us before we get that far. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 says this. Speaking of chastisement of God, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Verse 9. Furthermore, we have human fathers who correct us 
and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to Father of Spirit and live? For they, speaking of the fathers, indeed for a few days chasten us as seems best to them. But he, speaking of God, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now chastising or chastening seems to be joyful. Uh, like now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Isn't that true? Who loves to have chastening discipline? No one. But painful, nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God intervenes sometimes before he lets our sin take us down. Many times we are chastened as a result of our own sins, just as an earthly father must discipline his children when they are disobedient. So God must discipline us when we are not resisting temptations or are living in sin. Many times discipline is for our own safety and well-being. God sees the area of danger that we ourselves cannot see, God's chastening is done as a method of purifying us and guiding us back to holiness. When I read the Bible, there are many forms of chastening. And, and I'm not going to read them all, but think about this. Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden so in their sin state they wouldn't eat the tree of life. Marion and Aaron decided they wanted to be leaders and told Moses so, and God said, mm-mm. And Marianne became leprous like snow. Oh my goodness. Moses got down and prayed for her and the, lep the leprous fled. I want to read 1 Corinthians 11, 29, 30 to give us an insight in the New Testament. In verse 29, it says, For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have died, fallen asleep. So we see the chastisement of God. The difficulty in defining what is of God and what is of this fallen world is not easy. It's easy to get superstitious and believe that everything that's done in a negative sense or with evil is of God. God help us. <laughs> to not fall into that trap. We live in a fallen world where there's disease. I mean, we just went through an epidemic, you know, and you can't blame everything on God. And sometimes people want to, but you have to discern. And I think the best way to discern it is saying, listen, am I in sin? Am I running away from God? Then repent and get right. Ask Jesus to forgive you. And surrender to him. That's the best way. Whenever some calamity happens or something in my own vehicle or anything, I just go to God. All right, God, you're cleaning the house. Here we go. Here's my, here's my life. I repent. I get right. And I say, forgive me, Lord. I want nothing to hinder what you want to do through my life. It's the best way. I'm not superstitious. I don't think everything's from God. I just, but if I'm in sin, phew, I think everything that's negative is from God. He's getting me right back on track. Thank you, Jesus. Because that's what that means I'm, I'm a son. Maybe you're, you know, if that's happening to you, you're a daughter. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. We see that throughout the Bible. We've seen that with Job. You know, that's, that's a beautiful story, and, and that's one that we cannot 
look at it and say he had sin and he was running from God. Sometimes it just happens. And my prayer is for you if you're going through that right now. It's a difficult time and we don't know why and we won't know why until we're in heaven. But I'm praying for you. Back to the story of Jonah in verse 13. It says this, instead, the men did their best to row back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord. Notice, they're no longer crying to their gods. Who are they crying to? Yeah, Yahweh, Jehovah, Lord. By the way, when they, when they translate Yahweh later on to Jehovah, they didn't even get that right. They, they started out with Jehovah, and then they had the, oh, Jehovah in our English language. And then the, more, the Jehovah Witness took it and said, we want to be Jehovah. We're like, that's the farthest distant name when it comes to translation than Yahweh. And that's kind of weird for them. But anyway, they hold on to that. Just throwing that out there for those of you that want to study that. You know, it's bizarre. Why would you take the name Jehovah? That's, that's the farthest translation from Yahweh you can get. They cried to Yahweh, and they say, Oh, Yahweh, oh, Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, oh, Lord, have done as you please. There's the sovereignty of God. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared Yahweh, the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. I wonder what kind of vows did they make to Yahweh. I wonder if they said, God, from now on, you're the true and living God, I'm gonna follow you. And whatever you want of this life, I give it to you. How many of you prayed that? How many of you prayed that and said, please don't send me to China? Do you really believe what you pray? <laughs> Lord, send me anywhere. Oh, but not there, you know. <laughs> Whatever you want, Lord. These are the kind of vows I think they're making. This is the first group of men that get saved through the life of Jonah. Pretty powerful. I love going to the unreached people groups that never heard the name of Jesus. I get up and I share about him who's done the greatest miracles of all time. Witnesses have seen him. The, the blind receive their sight. The deaf uh, hear. The mute speak. And I want to know if you want to give your life to the, to the one and only God. And all these hands will raise up. And I'll say, no, 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 you don't understand. You've got to get rid of all your gods that aren't gods at all <laughs> and turn to the true and living God. And yet you'll still see people within that group raise their hand. I want to do that. I will reject all my foreign gods that aren't gods at all and serve the true and living God, Jesus. It's amazing. It's an amazing experience. And you see people come to the Lord sometimes in the hundreds or in the thousands. One time I was in India speaking to about 8,000 people. Uh, and they said, oh, pastor, get up there and share the gospel. And I'm like... Uh, I don't want to share any, I don't want to share in front of these people, man. I got tongue tied, you know, you know, and you, and you get up there and, and you give the gospel and the Holy Spirit's taking the word and it's going deep within souls and causing conversion. 
and thousands give their life to Jesus. It's powerful. No, I tell them, no, don't raise your hand so quickly. <laughs> you don't know what you're saying. You don't know what you're doing. You have to deny the God you worship here and turn to the true and living God. And yet, hundreds will still raise their hands to give their life to Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, my friends. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in my life on a Sunday morning, going to church with my mom one day. <laughs> so anti-God, so anti-religion. And yet God begins to knock on that door. Come, come to me, and I will give you rest. That's what happened to me, that conversion. All these men get saved. They call no longer on Elohim, small g-o-d, but the true and living God, Yahweh. I love it. They understand who's behind this. They say that it is God who has brought this about. And he goes on in verse 17. Now he's in the water. The water's calm. And, the, and all the sailors are probably all lined up looking at him going, what's going to happen to Jonah? And they're watching. And then they see the, the biggest fish they have ever seen in their life. <laughs> Take them right in. <laughs> Michael Packard, 56-year-old commercial lobster. You probably want to write that name down so you can look it up. Michael Packard, a 56-year-old commercial lobster diver, found himself in the mouth of a humpback, 2021. He was diving for lobsters, and it went completely dark on him. And he panicked. He's like, what am I doing? Where am I? Am I in a shark's mouth? And he starts feeling around. He doesn't see, feel the teeth. And he's like, and, he, and his regulator fell down and the, the, the humpback went down. So he grabbed his regulator, but he could barely grab it because his feet were locked in on the, the, the mouth of the, the fish, the, the well. So he grabbed the regulator, put it back down and went down. And he's like, I'm going to die. <laughs> of course, that fish can't swallow him. That well can't, that particular well can't swallow him. It's, it's, got, it's too small of a, a throat there. And so, but it's in the mouth. 45, 50 seconds going down. The, the well did not like that feeling of that guy in his mouth, so he begins to go up. And when he goes up, he's, Michael says, here, I saw the sunlight. And I, you know, and I started wiggling, trying to wiggle, and the, the, fist, the well was throwing its head around and spit me out. And my feet came out first, and I was out, coming out, and the guy that works with me, he's going, what the heck? You know, and, he, and he's driving, and he sees him. 30, 40 seconds in this humpback. God provides at the right time. One of the things which we seem to forget is this. Jonah didn't know there was going to be a fish. He was going to his death. He didn't know he could survive in the fish's belly. And when he went into the water, he expected to die and would have died had it not been for God who intervened. But just at the right time, God appointed a fish. Think about that statement. Just at the right time, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Who sent the fish? <laughs> the same person who arranged the boat. The same person who arranged for the lot to fall on Jonah. The same person who sent the great storm. God did all of it. 
He's the hero of the story. It's interesting when you, when you, when you think of Jonah here, the story of Jonah, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> Jonah's not the hero of the story. God is. At, you know, it, it, over and over again, it's the Bible in the book of Jonah speaks of God intervening in the life of Jonah. Why did God send the fish first to rescue Jonah from the sea? If he hadn't sent the fish, Jonah would have died in the ocean. Second, to bring him to repentance. Amazing, isn't it? This is how life really works. Sin looks good for a while. Jonah experienced the pleasure of sin for a season. If sin always brought immediate misery, it would be a lot less attractive to us. Stolen water may be sweet, but it leads you to the gates of hell. The bitterness comes later. The sadness comes later. The fish is God's SOS. The fish obeys God better than Jonah does. <laughs> the fish shows us our Savior. Jesus told his enemies that all the sign they needed was in Jonah's fish. God saves us from our stubborn sin. We'd rather commit suicide. We'd rather, we'd rather die than give up our sins. And that's what happens. It is no accident that in the ancient church used a fish for a sign of Jesus. It is the sign of Jonah. The fish takes Jonah to his, to his death, deep into the water. For three days, Jonah is good as dead in the stomach of the fish, in the deep, deep darkness of sea, but he is safe. Saved by the fish, saved from his stubborn sin, and spit up on the shore again, which we'll see next week. Someone wrote this pattern. It says there, it is the patience of God that allows us to run away. It is the wisdom of God that provides the ship. It is the providence of God that sends the storm. It is the kindness of God that sends the great fish. God is not obligated to any man, and in so far as Jonah is concerned, God did not even have to send wind, but he did. He did not have to prepare the fish, but he did. He did not have to eject Jonah from the fish, but he did. And he certainly did not have to come to Jonah the second time, but he did. He will do it for you. Hebrews 13:5, Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Amen. Amen. Such a powerful story. Are you a Jonah? <laughs> I don't know if you have sin in your life. I don't know if you're running away from God. I don't even know if you've ever accepted God in your life. But if you're in any of those categories, turn to him while you can. He loves you. He loves humanity. He wants to do something marvelous in your life. I remember not wanting to come to Christ because I didn't want to be religious. <laughs> I remember. I don't want to be like those people in that church that I saw in my youthful days. 
I don't want to be religious. And Jesus said, good. I'm not religious. I'm a lover of your soul. I'm your great God. And I want to do something amazing in and through your life. And ever since, ever since I gave my life to Jesus many, many years ago, it's been a wonderful trip. I've avoided the belly of the fish. <laughs> and I hope to keep that true <laughs> the rest of my life. But blessing upon blessing upon blessing. God has something wonderful for you if you will allow him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. If you've never given your life to Jesus and you would like to do that at this time, raise your hand that I might pray for you. Why do you raise your hand? It's just to acknowledge publicly the show. I'm not embarrassed of you, Jesus. I'm not embarrassed to give my life to you. It was John the Baptist that cried out even to the religious leaders, come forth and get baptized. Show fruit of repentance. He challenged them. Jesus stood on the steps and said, hey, all you are thirsty, come. I will give you rest, the invitation. It's the same call. Anybody here that needs to give their life to Jesus for the first time, raise their hand. Hi. If there's anybody that needs to get right with God, raise your hand. Why wrestle with him? Why fight with him? Anybody here this morning that needs to get right with God, I want to say a prayer with you. Anyone? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are those that are going through a struggle like nothing we've ever known. They don't know if it's from you. They don't know if it's just this crazy world. But this morning, I pray that you would comfort them. Show them how loving and kind you are and how gracious and how that you want to be their great God and that you want to save them. You sent out an SOS message right now to them. It's not a fish. <laughs> it's you, Jesus. Help them to see that. Rescue them now, Lord. And for those, Lord, that are running away right now, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to you, Lord, with your soft, kind voice that speaks deep within our soul. Speak to them, Lord. Tell them how gracious you are like you did to me that day. Tell them what kind of Savior you are, that you're slow to anger, patient, and long-suffering. Show them, Lord. Tell them that they might turn to you before it's too late. Save us, Lord. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.